For our sermon text this morning, we're looking at Genesis chapter 17 from verses 15 through to 27. Genesis chapter 17, verses 15 through to 27, which is the end of the chapter, and we'll read the whole chapter. Before we take that reading, we'll pray. So please now, if you'd join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures. We pray, Father, that our hearts would be made ready to receive them for that which they truly are, the very words of God. May we be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are understanding and obedient. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 17, starting at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, 
And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Amen. May God bless his word to us. So as we've been looking at chapter 17, and also um, if you cast your mind back to chapter 15, we, um, I'm hoping, remember that God deals with mankind on the basis of covenantal relationships. The first covenantal relationship was found in the garden, in the Garden of Eden. There was a requirement on Adam that he work perfect obedience. He was capable of perfect obedience before he fell into sin. He was also capable of falling into sin. The requirement on Adam in the garden was perfect obedience. What would have been his reward? Well, in a way we don't know exactly, but in a way we know from Scripture roughly what his reward would have been. The Scripture says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Adam fell short of the glory of God. You might say, what exactly does that mean? Well, once again, in a way we know and in a way we don't. Consider this, that Jesus, who is called the last Adam, he did not fall short of the glory of God. There is now a man. Jesus remains truly a man. He is truly divine. He is truly a man. But there is now a man who reigns at the right hand of God the Father over all creation. That man is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the son of God, Jesus, the son of the Virgin Mary. And so Jesus did not fall short of the glory of God. So Adam, in his covenantal relationship with God, had promises. And remember, there was a threat in the day that you disobey, in the day that you eat the forbidden forbidden fruit. In that day, you will surely die. It's actually, um, there's, there's a doubling of the word there. You could literally read it, in that day you will dying die. Dying you shall die. In that day, from that moment on, you begin to die. Death reigns. There was a covenant in the garden. There was a covenant with Noah. Noah came out of the ark. Noah sacrificed animals. God established a covenant with Noah. There was a sign of the covenant. The sign of that covenant with Noah was the rainbow. The promise was, I will never again flood the earth. Noah was told to be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth. The same, the same commandment of blessing that was given to Adam had now been given to Noah. Go out and fill the earth. And yet, even at the same time, sin was in the camp. And through Noah's son, Ham, and the son, of, the son of Ham called Canaan, sin was in the camp and they were cursed. Disobedience brought the curse of God. Well, here we are. God has set up a covenant relationship with Abraham. Notice with regards to these covenant relationships, they were set up usually through one man, Adam, Noah, Abraham. Notice that the covenantal relationship had consequence for the children of the man, for the ongoing generations. 
That man was considered to be a representative of all who came after him. And so God speaks to Abraham and tells him that this is the sign of the covenant, the circumcision of all men. Every male who is in your household, whether born of your loins or whether purchased into the household as a servant or a slave, all shall be circumcised. This is the sign of the covenant. And there was a threat concerning the circumcision. If no one is circumcised, they shall be cut off from among this people. In other words, they won't have access to the preaching and the promises of God. They'll be cut off from God's covenant community. Part of what I want to do today as we um, examine the portion before us is consider the one who is our covenant head. We, whether we're aware of it or not, we are in a covenantal relationship with God through a public person who is representative of all who come from him. That person is, and I've already spoken of that person, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, the son of David, Jesus, the son of God, Jesus, the son of man, Jesus, the last Adam. He is our covenant head. And as the head of our covenant, as the federal representative, if you want to use that phrase, the federal head of our covenant in the presence of God, he negotiates, draws forth, brings down blessings on us, on you and I. And so what I want us to see, and something that becomes very clear here in our passage today, is one of the differences, a number of the differences, that there are between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant, the new covenant under which we find our salvation, in which we find our hope, in which we find our security of relationship with God. Just to give you a little tease of it before we get into it, I want you to think of this. We're told in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, that Jesus intercedes for us. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 5. Jesus intercedes for us. And that therefore our salvation cannot fail. Think of it. Our covenant head, Jesus, is our king. He's our Lord. He's our great high priest. A priest in the Old Testament system, in the Old Covenant system, was one who went into the presence of God, making intercession for the people of God. But the priest himself, under the Old Covenant, was a sinner and sacrifices had first to be offered for the priest. But Jesus, our federal head, our covenant head, our saviour, he dwells in the very presence of God, making intercession for us. So, okay, we all like to know that there's somebody praying for us. If there are problems, if we have troubled times, if there are issues, what's the first thing you do if, if you're a believer? Pray for me. Please pray for me. There's illness in the family. There's been, a, there's been a disaster. Whatever the issue might be, please be praying for me. My friends, our covenant head lives in the presence of God and the scripture tells us that he is praying for us. He prays for us. He intercedes for us. So do you think his prayers are heard? And do you think his petitions are granted? 
And the answer has to be, of course, his prayers are heard and of course, his petitions are granted. It's 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 it. It's almost unthinkable to imagine that somehow or other, Jesus, God, the son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the son of David, who has been made perfect through his sufferings, lived a perfect life in the sight of God, died on behalf of his people, was raised from the grave by God and has now ascended on high. It's almost unthinkable. I mean, it's only thinkable in terms of a ridiculous thought that just could not possibly be. It's almost unthinkable that he would be praying to God on our behalf and God saying, no, you're getting it wrong and that's not the answer and I'm not doing that for you. That that would be that would be if you want to think of it this way a rift or a split or a division in the Holy Trinity. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons subsisting as God. All three persons, God in their entirety, truly God. The idea that our great High Priest could intercede for his people and the answer from God is no? It's ridiculous. Some of you are smiling. You should be. It's ridiculous. Notice something. Abraham, now I I point this out to point out the difference or what I see as the major point of difference between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. Abraham, at the head of the Abrahamic covenant, set up by God as God's representative on earth, walk before me and be blameless. Abraham intercedes for one of his sons. He intercedes for Ishmael. And the answer is very direct. Verse 18 of chapter 17. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said no. No No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. Abraham, a good, righteous, faithful man. Abraham, the chosen representative of God, set at the head of a covenantal covenantal relationship between all who came after him and God. Yet the intercession of Abraham could not deliver one of his own children. You see, the new covenant, it's better than the old covenant. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. God can say no to Abraham. Abraham is not God, the son of God. But when Jesus asks, all the promises of God, we're told in scripture, are yes and amen in him. When Jesus intercedes, there is is not a no. No is not the answer. That which Jesus seeks is given to Jesus. He has complete and total possession of his people. So that's um, that's the point that I want to make here. That's the point that I'm hoping to um, develop as we work through the sermon. But let's get into it. I'll give you my um, my headings as I come to them. And I've already made it. I've already made this point. But let's um, just break it down carefully. The federal head of a covenant is the means of bringing others into a covenantal relationship. The federal head of a covenant is the means of bringing others into a covenantal relationship. It was that way for Adam. It was that way for Noah. It's that way for Abraham. It's also that way for David. Later on in scripture, we're told about the Davidic covenant. 
And it's a covenant of salvation. It's the promise of the coming son of David, the coming Lord Jesus Christ. So the very first thing we see is that God says to Abraham, through you, changes are going to happen in your family. Change number one, your wife, who was called Sarai, shall now be called Sarah. It's actually very hard to explain what the exact significance of the name change is. They both seem to mean princess. They both seem to mean princess, although some commentators feel that Sarai might carry the implication of troubles and um, strife, and Sarah would indicate that she's um, now enjoying the same relationship as Abraham. Notice that Abram was changed to Abraham, the A-H sound that in our language was added in. The same sound is now given to Sarah. Some commentators feel that it might indicate she's gone from a relationship of strife with God. Remember, there was strife when she gave her mate, her uh, female servant to Abraham. And now there's peace. I can't say that for sure. I'm not definitely not a, an expert in the Hebrew language, but that's about the best I could come up with. But there's a change. God has confirmed his covenant with Abraham because God has confirmed his covenant with Abraham. God's relationship to Sarah is also now brought under the microscope. Those who are at the head of a covenant are a means of changing the relationship of others. With regards to Ishmael, Ishmael was given the sign of the covenant. Ishmael was circumcised. But Ishmael did not receive the promises of the covenant. God made it very clear. You're going to have another son. He's going to come to you via Sarah. And on him shall all the promises rest. Ishmael will receive the sign of the covenant. In other words, he will be brought, as it were, under the word of God, but will not receive the promises. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, we find that Sarah is counted among the faithful. Hebrews 11, 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. By faith, Sarah, by faith. God has spoken of Sarah. God has blessed Sarah. Sarah is now a woman of faith and by faith, Sarah will conceive. Yet, as I've already pointed out, Ishmael received the sign of the covenant, but not the promises. In the book of Hebrews, turn back to Hebrews chapter 9. This does actually flow on from what I was teaching last week. Last week, I ended up talking about um, circumcision, baptism, the difference between pedo-baptism and credo-baptism, where Reformed Baptists we baptise people who make confession of faith. We don't baptise infants. And we started to look at that. This still flows from that same, same subject. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15 is where I want us to be. Therefore, he is the mediator, speaking of Jesus, of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
Once again, what's my point here? Why have I turned us to this? Notice that in the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews, many believe it was Paul preaching and someone else writing down his sermon. Notice that in the book of Hebrews, Paul basically divides covenants into two. He says there's a new covenant and then there's a first covenant. So we know from the text of Hebrews that the author is very much aware of Abraham and Abraham's relationship with God. And it's only possible to conclude that he's counting Abraham's relationship with God as being under, within, or just like the first covenant or the old covenant. It's basically of the same nature. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Turn back to, hang on. Okay. Furthermore, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. You've got new covenant. You've got old covenant. New covenant is salvation. We would call it Christianity. You've got old covenant which is describing anything that you find in the Bible as a covenantal relationship with God that is not new covenant. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2, where we looked again last week, or we looked last week. Reading at verse 38. We'll start at verse 37. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, What shall we do? Remember, these are the Jews who have been convicted of the fact that they murdered the Messiah. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Who was to be baptized? Those whom the Lord our God calls. Whether they were from those people to whom Peter and the apostles were directly preaching or their children or those who were far off, those who were to be baptised were everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Remember that which we just read in Hebrews at 9.15. And I'll read it to you again. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So what's the point I'm laboring? The Abrahamic covenant is not the new covenant. It does not confer salvation simply by being there. Whereas the new covenant does to be brought into a relationship with God under the terms of the new covenant through Jesus Christ, our Lord, is to be brought into a relationship of saving faith. You say, well, wasn't Abraham saved by faith? And the answer is yes, he was saved by faith. But that covenantal relationship and the sign of the covenant came along after he had exercised faith, after he had had the gift of faith. It was a sign of his covenant, not necessarily the sign of his faith. 
God gave Abraham faith and through Abraham, God brought into being the Abrahamic covenant. So back into our text at Genesis chapter 17. Abraham intercedes for Ishmael. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Verse 19, God says, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Okay, what, what's to be learned here? We who are Christian parents, we who have Christian, I'm sorry, we who have a family, we who have children, what's to be learned? Look, we can pray for God to bless our children. We can pray for God to bless our children. And I'm telling you, in terms of worldly achievement, church-raised children tend to do very well. You'll find plenty of them in universities. You'll find plenty of them getting qualifications. You'll find plenty of them filling the ranks of professionals. You'll find plenty of them running successful businesses. You'll find plenty of them who, in some way or other, you would say are definitely being blessed. But we can't get them saved. We can't get our children saved. God's answer is no but. God's answer is no but. Children raised in a Christian family, God, your parents can restrain you from the worst of sins. They, they, can, they can restrain you from the wildness of sin, but they can't save you. They can't, they can't bring you into a living, loving relationship with God. We raise our children under the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We raise our children under the word of God. I'm not making fun of that. We, you know, we teach our children to pray. We teach them to tell us that they believe in Jesus. I'm not making fun of that. I'm not saying that that is not a worthwhile exercise. I'm not saying any such thing. But what I'm saying is faith, true living faith, it's a gift from God. It's according to the grace of God. We cannot entrap God into anything. We can't even entrap God into making sure our children are saved. It's by the grace of God. I mean, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, as he argues about God's electing grace, remember he points to a pair of twins, Jacob and Esau, raised in the same house, raised under the same gospel. You know, they weren't just roommates, they were womb mates. Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. The grace of God, my friends. We do all we can for our children. We pray that God will bless our children. God will indeed bless our children. As I've said, in many different ways, the church does supply the backbone of societies. We do. But through education, through all the good intentions in the world, etc., 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 we can't get our kids saved. We're begging for their salvation, praying for their salvation. We can't assume that it is so. We're praying for their salvation. And our children who are walking with the Lord, we're thankful that God has been so merciful, that God has been so gracious. It's the hope of any Christian parent. 
continuing back in Genesis chapter 17. At verse 22. When he, that's God, had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And we need to think about that. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. So we have to ask some questions. I think it's an important little verse. It's an important little thing there. The idea behind it is God's condescending grace. We don't like condescending people. You know, he's a, he's a condescending coot. He's a condescending so-and-so. We don't like condescending people. You know, if you say someone is condescending, you say that person thinks they're better than me and that person thinks they're doing me a great favour just by speaking to me. And we don't like that. But God is better than us. God is greater than us. God is more righteous than us. And God's love for us is condescending and it's good. It's good. God went up from Abraham. God owns the earth. God created the earth. Nothing on earth is happening that is apart from the will of God. Yet God's throne is in the heaven of heavens. Where would Abraham be if God did not come down to him? Where indeed would anyone be if God did not come down to us? God gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And what did Jesus say? What if you were to see me ascending to the heavens? What if you were to see me going back into heaven from where I came? What would you think at that moment? God came down to Abraham and I'm telling you that for anyone to be saved, God must condescend to reach down to you. God comes to us. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a famous illustration. It was used by a famous evangelist. He says, you know, you're drowning in the ocean. You're drowning. You're going to die. If you don't get help, you're certain to die. You're struggling. You're just at the surface of the water. You're, you're dying. It's your very last breath. You're finished. And then someone flows, throws you. A flotation device. A life buoy. And you just got to reach out and grab it. And if you reach out and grab it, you will be saved. You know the picture? That's the picture? You've heard that one? That's not what the scripture's teaching. <laughs> The scripture doesn't say you were only just alive in your sins and God came and made you a little bit more alive. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2 says you were dead in your sins. Here's the illustration. You're at the bottom of the ocean. You stopped breathing long ago. You are without hope. You are without power. You're finished, gone. There's not a person upon the earth who can help you. There's nothing that can help you. And you can't help yourself. That's the picture. That's where you are. And God comes down to the bottom of the ocean through Jesus our Lord. And just as God breathed life into Adam when he created, God breathes life into that dead body and takes you back up to where you can breathe. 
That's the picture. If God had not come down to Abraham, Abraham would still be an idolater. If God had not come down to you or I, we would still be whatever it was we were before we consciously, deliberately, faithfully chose to walk with God. I use the word chose. You say you're a Calvinist. People don't choose. Yes, they do. They choose according to the nature that they have. And if you have a nature that chooses to walk in obedience to the will of God, it's because God has awakened you, awakened you, given you life, brought you to life. It's because God has enabled you to be obedient to his will. And you choose to obey because God has given you life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You have been born again. And I'm not saying you must have had a conversion experience where you walked to the front of a building and repeated a prayer. I'm not saying any such thing. God saves as he saves. And there are plenty of people in the world who can't remember a day when they didn't believe. They were taught in Sunday school and they were convicted, converted at that moment. Good for them. Praise God. God went up from Abraham. God had come down from Abraham in condescending grace. Okay. The next heading I've got is the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. The book of Romans at Romans chapter 1 verse 5 and at Romans chapter 16 verse 26. At the beginning and at the ending of the book, you find that phrase, those words, the obedience of faith. Paul, starting in Romans chapter 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 16... Right down near the end, the doxology, the closing words of the book of Romans. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Verses 23 to verse 27. God had gone up from Abraham. And here we see the obedience of faith. Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house. Or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Think about this. Abraham must have been teaching his people about God. He must have been teaching his servants about God. Imagine if he never had. What's the day? It's the 3rd of April. Imagine if he never had. Imagine. Let's put Abraham here today. Up until the 2nd of April... He had never mentioned God to his household. Never said a word. 
He thought that his relationship with God was a private thing and need not be shared among others. Never told anyone about the promises of God. Never told anyone about his covenant with Yahweh, where Yahweh had passed through the animals cut in half. Never told anyone. That's April the 2nd. And April the 3rd, he goes to this um, this group, which most of the commentators feel was probably around about 1,000 people now, so probably around about 500 men. Remember, when he had to raise an army, he had 300 trained men ready for war. Goes to a group of around about 1,000 people, says to the 500 men, today you're getting circumcised. And they say, Why? And he says, it's just got to happen. It's just got to be done. I've got this idea. It should be done. Well, I'll tell you what, if I was one of that household, (laughs) I'd be looking for the escape route. Where is that exit sign that comes on when things get dark? Because that's the way I want to go. But on that very day, he circumcised every man under his oversight. Man, boy, baby. Today, men, we must be circumcised. Why? It is the sign of the covenant relationship that I have with God. Remember, I've been telling you all about the promises of God. I've been telling you that God will make a great nation through my loins. I've been telling you that God is building a city made without hands that there's eternal life with him. Remember, that's what we read about Abraham in the book of Hebrews at at other times. Abraham didn't just believe that he was going to have a child and that that child was going to ultimately inherit the land of Canaan. Abraham believed more than that. We read in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus said, Abraham saw me from afar off and he rejoiced. Abraham had been preaching and teaching his people. I'm not saying they were faithful, but I'm saying that this was not a crazy surprise to them. When Abraham come to them saying, God has spoken to me and this is the consequence of what he has said, I don't think they were overly surprised. My friends, if you're the head of a household, you have a duty. If you're the head of the household, you have a duty and that duty is to share that which God has given to you with those around about you, most especially those whom God has placed under your authority. So that when you come to them with words from God, they're not utterly surprised as though they never knew you knew anything about God in the first place. Your whole life, therefore, has to be before them something that they can observe as a godly life. It's got to be a godly life. You know, there's no point standing on your authority as a man of the Lord if you're a wicked sinner in the presence of your family. All right, If they don't respect your acts, they're not going to respect your words. You've got to live the life you talk about. You've got to be obedient to the God whom you say that you love. And you should be convicted of your sin even as I say it. I'm convicted of my sin even as I say it. I'm aware of my shortcomings. And if ever I happen to forget my shortcomings, I have a wife and, you know, God loves us. He knows that we won't get by very well alone. You have to live the life that God commands you to live. And if you want to have the words of God coming from your lips, you have to live a godly life. 
No one pays much attention to hypocrites. And the world absolutely loves it when Christians fall or supposed Christians fall. Absolutely loves it. You know, when was the last time that this made the national news? Faithful pastor who served his congregation for 60 years, humbly serving the Lord, raised his children in faithfulness and never strayed, died at peace and was buried on Saturday. That doesn't make the news, does it? Nobody wants to hear about the real thing. What makes the news? Pastor of Hillsong resigns in a stink, in a stink of controversy. Apparently he's been covering up for pedophiles. Apparently there's strange things going on with the money. Apparently his doctrine is terrible, makes room for all sorts of sexual perversions. That's what the world loves to hear. If you want to be preaching the gospel, you've got to be living the gospel. And at that, all of us should be convicted of our sins and praising God that he is gracious and faithful because there is forgiveness with God. You know, I, I just want to stress this. Every time I try to hammer you with conviction of sin, it's only because I want you to turn to Jesus. There's salvation in Christ. That's our only hope. So Abraham, in the obedience of faith, has his household circumcised. And that household would have been prepared for this ongoing walk with God by the preaching and the living of Abraham. Yet he's not perfect. He has sinned. He has fallen at times. He has put his wife at risk. He's going to do that again. He has um, strayed with Hagar and brought forth a son who is not the son of the promise. He's the son of the flesh. We're told in the book of Galatians. Even so, he's a faithful man. He's, he's taught his people to the best of his ability. And so Abraham circumcises his household. Remember, we'll get there eventually, the Lord willing. When Isaac needs a wife, Abraham has a faithful and believing servant whom he can trust to go and find a wife for his son. Remember, he sends a guy off hundreds of miles out into the world. Go find me a wife for my son. He's preached the gospel to his own people. So let's just close up now with some conclusions. Salvation is through faith in Christ alone, and it's a gift of God. We can pray for people. We can beg for their salvation. We can pray for our children and beg for their salvation. And parents, I say that you should. I say that you should, but we can't make it happen. Only God can make it happen. We're utterly reliant upon God, even for faith in our children. They are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. To refuse this grace, to refuse this salvation, you could end up an Ishmael. Because your parents are faithful, God does indeed visit you with some kind of blessing. I can think of, I can think of some people that I know who are doing very well in the world and they're decent people and they're the husband of one wife. Yet I don't know about their salvation and I know that their parents have prayed for them faithfully. And remember this as we close. Saving faith is always made evidence through the obedience of faith.
Always. Always. How is it that Abraham had the moral authority to circumcise every man in his, in his household? To take, a, to take a little mobile tent village and say, today is the day of circumcision. How is it that he had the moral authority? Because I'm telling you, any man here, put yourself in that situation. If the guy who says this has no moral authority, <laughs> you're just going to laugh in his face. Uh-uh, that ain't happening. I'm going. I will not be here tomorrow. Thank you. Keep your religion. Keep your sign of your covenant. Don't want to know about it. Saving faith is always made evident through the obedience of faith. You're saved by faith alone. But to quote uh, Martin Luther, but that faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by the works of faith. It's always accompanied by the obedience of faith. And so, my friends, if you're in Christ, I call you to deepen your commitment to Christ, to deepen your walk with God, to seek to sanctify yourself through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Put to death the sins that are so evident within you. If you're outside of Christ, I say, what is your problem? God is gracious and willing to forgive. God will call you into his kingdom. Repent. Put your trust in Jesus, seeking the forgiveness of sins. My friends, what we need, what we want, is that covenantal relationship with God through Jesus Christ our Lord that guarantees to us our eternal life. The forgiveness of sins, the cleansing from the stain of sin, the, the, the sure hope, the certain hope that our eternity is going to be lived in the presence of the Son of God. Gazing upon his face, worshipping him. He will be our God and we will be his people. This world has nothing to offer in light of that. It tries. It seeks to turn us aside. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks and praise for your condescending grace. We praise you that you did so love the world that you gave your only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but has eternal life. Our Father, I pray that for all of us who have found that life in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would strengthen us and bless us in our Christian walk. Help us to grow in grace, faith and Christ-likeness. Help us to be sanctified. Help us to be obedient. Help us to not only speak the gospel but live the gospel. And I pray, Father, for any who hear this, who are not in Christ, that you would grant to them the gift of repentance, that they indeed would turn to Christ in faith, find the forgiveness of their sins and find the life that is only to be had in Jesus our Lord. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.